0: This is the ages three year, four years old through third grade. Four years old through third grade, so you can head to the back, and there'll be a, a church on your level. Some of uh, us adults would like to go there as well, I think, so. All right, so the children are dismissed, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter four. We started last week and uh, looking at this text of Scripture that reminds us about prayer. And as we do so, I trust that it will be an encouragement to you about the subject of prayer and our need as uh, the children of God to take every opportunity to both worship, praise, thanks God, and also intercede and, uh, and pray and seek His face for our own needs. So we started it. And um, we're going to continue it, and we will finish it in a couple of weeks. So, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4 is our text. Let me read uh, those verses. It says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ. For which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The title uh, for this message and that has become a series is Keep on Praying. Just keep praying. And there are, as I look in this text, uh, really um, uh, the the encouragement, maybe more than that, uh, the command to continue earnestly in prayer. Uh, This great avenue that we have uh, to speak to the Lord. And as we look at the text, there are four specific aspects of prayer in this text that I've outlined. Uh, They're in your bulletin. If you uh, want to look in the back of your bulletin, it may help you. Uh, But they are uh, there for you. Four specific aspects of prayer. First, the pattern of praying continues earnestly. It says, keep on praying, if you would in that, uh, that little statement there. Secondly, the passion for prayer, being vigilant in it. And then the praise of praying with thanksgiving, it says. And then finally, the partnership of prayer, praying also for, for us, Jesus. the Apostle Paul writes. And so and those all come right out of our text. They kind of reveal to us this matter of prayer and the aspects of it. So I'm going to ask God's blessing as we open his word, so if you bow with me one more time, we'll pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege to be able to come and to be able to worship together as a body, uh, to be encouraged in this spiritual discipline of prayer. Lord, it is true that all of us are very self-sufficient, very proud and we often try to do things in our own strength. And rather than seeking your help and asking you for guidance and leadership in our lives, we bumble around and make mistakes and and fail. And yet you have given us this privilege to be able to speak to you, to be able to come into your presence, to be able to ask you for leadership to direct our lives to seek your help and also you've given us the great privilege to be able to do so in worshiping you not just corporately as we do here on Sundays where we all come together to worship in unison but to be able to worship you day in and day out through the avenue of prayer to be able to speak to you and to thank you and to praise you for what you've done. And so we ask that you would uh, use the time today to encourage us in this discipline, to uh, help us to see where and why we fail to do it, that we might correct it, and Lord, that you would encourage us again through uh, just the conversations that we have with each other as we go out from here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I already uh, took time last week to talk a little bit about prayer and, and just kind of overview it. And we looked at that first aspect of prayer, the pattern for prayer as we see it here, continue earnestly in prayer. And so we're going to pick up and really start on that second aspect in just a moment. Um, but I thought one of, the, one of the encouraging passages of Scripture to me uh, to see how God leads, how he answers prayer, is found actually in the book of Genesis. And it's Abraham's servant. Uh, you might be familiar with the passage. He is commissioned by Abraham to go and to seek a wife for Isaac, his son. And so in Genesis chapter 24, and I'll pick up in verse 12, and I've kind of edited a little bit so I won't follow exactly what the text says, but... um But you can follow with me uh, for the most part. So, Genesis 24, verses 12 through 27. Then he said, this is Abraham's servant. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher, that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, Son of Milcah, the daughter, I'm sorry, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And as the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down. To her hand and gave him a drink, and when he had, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, "I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished giving him a drink." Then she, said I'm sorry, uh, then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to the to draw water, and drew for all of his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was that the camels had finished drinking, that the man said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Melchizedek's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough to room and lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my thought, Master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and has and his truth toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Now the text goes on, and he rehearses everything all over again uh, throughout this text. But it's such an encouraging aspect as you see him come to the well of water and asking specifically for different things um, that it would be the first one who came out that the woman would not only give him drink but he would she would also offer to give uh, the camel's drink that not only would she give the camel's drink but she would also provide lodging for him and and every one of those things specifically, addressed. So how did that happen? Coincidence? <laughs> Was that just sheer random accident that, she, that he prayed that way and that she responded that way? Or is it indeed God marvelously and miraculously answering prayer of his servant who is being led by him? This is this great avenue of prayer that we have. Whether it was that God laid it upon this man's heart to ask for those specific things, or whether he laid it upon her heart to do those specific things, or both, who knows, right? But this was the Lord who was answering and uh, just as what was said, to give direction and clarity in the leading of his servants. And So it is this, this great... Avenue of prayer that we have to be able to seek God to ask of Him, and uh, and He answers and hears hears and answers our prayers. And so, as we have looked at this text and began already, uh, we saw first of all the pattern for praying, continuing earnestly. Prayer is indeed a discipline, and it's something that, uh, as a child of God, um, we have to continue on doing. And it is um, our own pride our own um, self-trust that we move away from prayer. We begin to live uh, life based upon our own desires and our own strengths. Uh, Oftentimes, difficulty comes into our life to cast us back on the Lord, to force us back to dependency upon Him That, that pushes us to prayer and seeking His face. And so um, we oftentimes get out of the discipline and God graciously brings trials into our lives or difficulty to push us back to himself. As we talked about last week, he is a person. And prayer to him is just as we would converse with another. It is the discipline of prayer that we find here. Now, the second aspect in this text is the passion for praying. It says, being Vigilant, being vigilant here, and if you have the old authorized version that says watch or watching in prayer, and both of those capture the idea of what's going on here. I'm not sure that the word passion best captures the thought of the text or the word in the original language that you find that's translated Vigilant but it's the same word that the Lord Jesus uses when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, it is before uh, the, the soldiers come to arrest him, but as the disciples are there, he says, watch and pray. Right? Stay alert. Be ready. Be vigilant in prayer. And it's really an, an encouragement to us because it is easy to let our guard down. It's easy to become lazy about the subject, or to become sleepy, just like the disciples did in the garden. And so, this word speaks about that discipline of being vigilant, being ready. The word carries the idea of being alert, with a sense of alarm, uh, thus being vigilant and watchful. It's most often used in the context of watchfulness, um, of looking for the Lord's return. As we know in the scriptures, it speaks about... Um, Jesus' imminent return, that he could return at any moment. And watchfulness is a part of the believer's life, looking forward to, looking always toward the Lord's imminent return. Now that obviously has some motivation, right? If the Lord is going to return imminently, if we believe that he could return at any moment, then um, we would live a little bit differently. We would conduct our lives a little bit differently. We would um, uh, think through our day a little differently. Now, we don't know when he's going to return, but this is the idea of watchfulness. It's the idea of vigilance. I was thinking about this, and I'm kind of blessed today. For those of you who are here, the the live cast isn't working. Um, It just shut down, so I have a mobile microphone, and I can actually move. And uh, I'm really glad. It's like I've been tethered to the pulpit for the last several months and having to stay stationary back there so I can actually walk around today. That's really an answer to... No, it's not necessarily, but I'm glad to be able to move around. At some point, we'll get some cameras that can be able to move. But when you think about the Lord's imminent return, the fact that he could return at any any minute, at any moment, how does that affect the way we live our lives? How does that change the way we live, and especially when we look at all of the things that are going on in our world today. It's not just in our country. It's global stuff, right? I mean, countries shut down. If you would have said six months ago, before COVID ever happened, if you would have said every country will close its borders, lock down, force its people into their homes because of a virus, we all, I think we all would have went, yeah, right, that's not going to happen, right? And yet, in a, just a short amount of time, our world has really changed. I'm not here to preach about the Lord's return. I'm simply saying that with that in mind, this idea of watchfulness and prayer has the same idea. It's like the person who's standing guard at night and all of a sudden, something like there's a noise Like, I've I've not been in the military. But if I were standing guard and all of a sudden there's a noise that isn't a typical noise, right? The hair on the back of your neck stands up. You're all of a sudden alert. You're looking with with intent um, eyes into the darkness, peering for any movement, anything suspicious. This is the idea of this word watchfulness here. Vigilance. Being vigilant in prayer. How's your prayer life? Is it like that? Is that the kind of prayer life you have? Vigilant? I needed to hear this today. I needed to hear this as I studied, actually. I've been, I, I, I get the privilege of working through this text throughout the week. And it has been a real rebuke to me. And a, a confronting to me. And so we have this idea of expectation, anticipation, watchfulness, vigilance in prayer. And this is what we're being encouraged to as God's children. That we need to be vigilant in prayer. That we need to be watchful. Now, in the text, this vigilance is combined with evangelism. Paul says, pray for me that I might open to others the mystery of the gospel. Right? And so it's combined with this idea of evangelism and the evangelistic praying for ministry of the Apostle Paul. So, so it seems to be like this passionate prayer for those who are in need of salvation. Or prayer that's moving towards or agonizing for the unredeemed. Those who, who, who are outside of the gospel. Those who don't know the Lord. Those who are... Um, facing eternal condemnation, our response as the people of God is to be vigilant in prayer for them, to be agonizing in prayer for them. It's the it's the desperation of of, of knowing the peril of another and being burdened, or even weeping and pleading for them. Which, when's the last time? Again, I had to ask myself these questions this week. When's the last time that you just wept over those who are outside of the gospel? Those who didn't know Christ? Um, let me just take you to a couple passages where Paul emulates this kind of, of life. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and then Romans 10 and verse 1 kind of work in tandem. But in that passage in Romans 9, verses 1-3, through it says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And in chapter 10, and verse 1, following up on that, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire... And my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I pray continually for them. I pray vigilantly for them. I weep for them who are outside of the gospel, who don't know the Lord. In Philippians 3 and verse 18, in speaking about some who had departed from the faith, Paul writes this, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There was no angst in his life toward them. But there were a continual burden for them, a weeping for them. This is the passion that our text is communicating in Colossians. It is this watchful prayer of the people of God who are burdened for those who are outside of Christ, who don't know the gospel, who are really in a place of peril. Maybe it would be more effective if we contrast it with the opposite attitude of being not watchful or not vigilant, um, of being unconcerned or sleepy, of Not watching on my guard, if you would, or being ready. The scriptures even have this kind of an appeal to us as we look in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 13 and verses 11 and 14, um, we find that Paul writes there, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness or, and not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. But in the first part of that is this appeal. It's time to wake up. It's time to, 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 um, to be ready and to wake out of sleep because your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. That's always true, right? Every day that's true. Every day it's nearer than when you first believed. And so the appeal is there. Or in First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34, it says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some have not the knowledge of God they speak to see your shame. Awake, right? You're sleepy. Or in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, Peter writes, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. This is the appeal that we're receiving in Colossians. To be watchful. The scriptures oftentimes encourage us to 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 wake up, to be ready, to look. And so as we look at what's going on in the world around us today, between the worldwide shutdown because of the virus and all of the civil unrest that's going on, the upheaval that's happening, if you're not awake with the sense of alarm right now, well, I'm not sure what needs to happen to wake you up, frankly. Once more, as a Christian and being aware of the big picture. We should be the more ready, if you would. The more awake. The more heightened with a sense of awareness. What we're speaking about. It. Now, as we as, as we look at this text, we have this sense of alertness. So, so let me just say a couple of things of practical instruction. Um, just for us, uh, in as, as we look at this text, about vigilance and prayer. And why we may not be that way. First. Sin in our life, the love and the care of the things of this world, dull our sensitivities, cause the sleepiness, the lack of awareness that we're speaking about here. We will not be a praying people if our lives are filled with sin and our eyes are filled with the desires of this world. If you're finding a difficult time praying, Maybe you have to just look there. It was important for me, again, as I studied, prepared, thought through, meditated on, I needed this kind of challenge as well. And so if you're finding it difficult prayer, that may be the problem. Take time. Do some introspection. Ask God to reveal sin in your life that's there. Ask Him to show you that you might confess it and forsake it and to walk with Him. Second, We may may not be awake and aware and alert because Satan, who is the master deceiver, would like to keep us occupied and busy with anything else rather than to be a praying people, fills our hands with all kinds of things and not always bad things. Might be good things. And so we're filled and occupied with so many things that we stop praying and stop communing with our God. The power of prayer must not be undersold. And the enemy of our soul seeks to disarm us and every avenue that we have, and specifically the avenue of prayer. He is cunning. He's gifted. He's been doing this since the beginning of time. And he knows the art of diversion. As you think of Ephesians chapter 6. The wiles of the devil, the sly tricks, the cunning devices of the devil, that he, he he seeks to divert our attention, replace it with something else, rather than what we need to be doing in the first place. He, if you would, replaces what is best with what is good. Thirdly, it can simply be a matter of not being conscious or awake or aware, and therefore, not concerned, not alarmed about the need to pray. You could just be living blissfully unaware of what's going on around us, of the greater need, the threat, and therefore not vigilant in prayer. And so, all of these can be contributing factors of not being awake, not being ready to pray, not being vigilant in our prayer. All of these, and probably many more that I didn't say. The point is, here in this text, one of the aspects of prayer is to be vigilant, to be passionate about prayer. And I know uh, as we look at this text, um, this may not jump off the page, but it's an aspect that we have to consider. Thirdly, and this one we'll take time to look at before we conclude, don't get encouraged about the concluding remarks yet, alright? So, but the third aspect the praise of praying. I think the psalm echoed part of what I uh, wanted to say uh, from this text today. Uh, but we find that Paul writes here in Colossians. Um, it says, Meanwhile, praying... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong passage. Here we go. Um, I was... Uh, let me see. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So, This is by far much easier to talk about than the last subject that we just did. All right, but it's equally important. A part of our praying, uh, oftentimes we overemphasize the request part and underemphasize the praise part. We don't take time to thank God. We move quickly from hello to gimme. If you would. Hello to open up your bank rolls and pay out my bills and whatever else you want to say, all right? We often make our praying about our own selfish concerns. And with the majority of our time spent asking God for our own well being or for our own wants or desires, here we're reminded that we must take or make sure to include the giving of thanks. And to be earnest and vigilant along with this. God is always good. And therefore, we always have much to give thanks about. And I want to come back and visit this a little bit. Maybe we can take some time to discuss it. But at the root of this word translating thanksgiving is the word grace. It's an, it's an understanding of them of God's grace, of his favor. It's actually a part of the word. Thus, giving thanks, if you would, is a natural response of a heart that has been touched by grace. The more we understand God's work through Christ on the cross and the grace that has been given through that and seeing our our desperate sinful condition and our need for a Savior, the more thankful we become. When we stop and we focus on God's gracious work, not sparing His own Son in our behalf for our salvation, well, our heart cries out with thanksgiving. That's the natural response of gratitude and thanksgiving for that grace. Conversely, the farther We are from God. And the more unaware we are of His grace, the more unappreciative, the more ungrateful, the more unthankful we become. When we do not know His grace because we have not come to Him by faith for salvation, or when we forget about how desperate our sinful condition was, where we were at when God rescued us, from our sin, grace will be far from our heart, and certainly far from our lips. It's amazing, but the, but but many people, believers included in this, but many people believe that God owes them a happy life, right? It's just like God kind of owes it to me, and if it's not going the way I think it should go, then it's God's fault, and I can be bitter and angry at Him right it's true people think that God owes you a happy life that God somehow is indebted to give you good things such as health and well-being and material possessions. then you have others who kind of preach a health and wealth gospel and they'll they'll say if you just have faith and if you just do right and live right then everything will go good for you and that's not true either. when life does not turn out how... They view it, or you view it. They complain, respond in bitterness. They accuse God of being unkind, unfair, ungracious, unloving. But nothing can be further from the truth. The scriptures remind us over and again, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved you and did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. God's kindness begins at the cross. And it is His grace that leads you to repentant faith for salvation. Listen to these verses that speak to that fact. Romans 2 and verse 4 says, Or do you you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance And long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It is His kind, good hand, His grace that leads you to repentance and salvation, which brings forth eternal life. Or Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you, if you strip everything away, if you take all of life away, you strip all of the things that you desire, all of the things that you want, all of the 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 things that you think God should give you, and all you have left is eternal salvation, is that enough to be thankful for? Is that enough to be grateful for? Or do you have a list of requirements? Do you have a a list um, in which you have to see those things happen for you to be grateful? For you to be thankful? Are you, are you pointing a finger at God and have certain expectations to determine your feelings of, uh, and expressions of gratitude? What, is it, what does God have to do to make you thankful? In other words, there's only one thing. And that's salvation. Eternal Salvation. We can look back through many who have suffered in the cause of their faith, down through history, people who were martyred, people who had nothing, who lived in caves, I think, of the end of Hebrews. Maybe we should turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. The first part of the chapter, of course, talks about all of these people who conquered by their faith, their great faith. They They did these great and mighty things. Verse 30, I'm reading in. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me To talk of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, and also of David and Samuel. And the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became uh, valiant, uh, valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, Then it says, others, not so triumphant in this life, in the sense that we would think of triumph. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial and mockings and scourgings, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I don't know what my life will end up like or yours will end up like. People who preach a prosperity gospel, who tell you that if you just walk with Jesus, everything will be great and your life will be flowery and you'll never have trials well, that's a lie. Um, The scriptures are clear that I have no guarantee of the morrow. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. We all may suffer for our faith. That's possible. There's nothing in the scriptures that would tell us differently. But even in that, Paul is writing to the Colossians. And where is he writing from? Anybody? Where is he writing from? I forgot I could walk away. So, where is he writing from? From prison. Right? It says, in his chains. He's in chains. He's shackled. He's writing from prison and he's writing to the believers saying, in your vigilant, earnest prayer, be thankful. So, Why can't we be thankful? Why isn't thankfulness a part of our prayer? What are some of the things, maybe this would be a good place to to kind of park it for a little bit and get some feedback from you. Um, What are some of the things that we can be thankful for even when everything else maybe is falling apart around us, health or whatever else? What are some of the things that you can be thankful for? So, Patty? Okay, that God is in control, even if it means suffering, I can trust God, right? He's in control. Chris? What? He doesn't leave us or forsake us. The scripture says that God is present with us. And so he doesn't leave us or forsake us. So even in suffering, we're not alone. He's with us in that suffering. Kurt, were you going to... (laughs) We're talking about prayer. He hears us. He hears us when we cry. Like a loving Father, He is listening to our prayer and He is acting because He's in control. And He is with us even in the midst of it. We're never alone. Right, John? Right? There's nothing that you can go through in life, no difficulty that you can face that he isn't acquainted with, that he doesn't already know. Because Jesus took on human flesh, became man, suffered. So he knows our suffering. He isn't just distant and remote, a God sitting up in heaven looking down on us with no idea. Of what we're going through, He, He wore our skin, looked out through our eyes, felt our pain. And so He understands. So even if everything isn't going good, He knows what we're going through, right? What else? Anybody else? Claude? Okay, so He is hearing our prayer. As, uh, as Kirk said. So he is hearing our voice and our prayers do make a difference. He's answering those prayers. 1 John chapter 5, um, verse 14, I think, um, talks about that when we pray to him, he hears us and he answers us in accordance with his will. Right? Okay? Jim? Okay? Because of our future hope. You can be thankful knowing that you're only a heartbeat away from heaven. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound like, like, ooh, that's really encouraging. But the point is that I have eternity to look forward to. And no matter what happens, because of what Christ has done, I don't have to fear death. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, right? These things, the Bible was written that you might know that you have eternal life. So it's not a, I hope one day I'll be in heaven. I know one day I'll be in heaven. Not because I'm good. Because Jesus was good. Because what he did on the cross was what was necessary to pay for my sins. So I don't fear death. Because his promise is eternal life to those who believe. Back up two more verses. 1 John five eleven and 12. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. And he that does not have the Son does not have life. So everyone in this room right now either has the Son or doesn't have the Son. Which means either they have life or they don't have life. But all who have the Son have eternal life and therefore are secure in that hope. That's the promise of the Scriptures. And so I can be thankful and, and, and give thanks to God so that no matter what, take away everything else. Health, like Job, Right? In the Old Testament, lost everything. Literally everything. And yet, it says, I came into this world with nothing, and I'm going to leave with nothing. As the old adage goes, right? There's no U-Haul behind a, a, a first. Right? Okay? Can't bring anything with you. You came in with nothing. You leave with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No matter what, praise be to God. That's the the encouragement from the text today. We're going to spend time in the latter part of this um, text, actually, which would be a good focus as we go into October, which oftentimes we emphasize mission. So the last part of, uh, or the last aspect is the partnership of prayer. And I think that that will, as we look at that, will be a real blessing to kind of just talk about how we join our hearts with each other and we pray um, not only for what God is doing here in our lives as a a body, but what he's doing around the world. And so that will be an excellent focus for that time. I'm going to just close in prayer and then John is going to come and lead us in a closing hymn. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I know these things are not earth-shattering or something that that um are not things that we already find new uh lord this is truth that we know already but i'm sure like me everyone here uh we need reminders and uh, lord it's easy to become sleepy to become satisfied to not be vigilant and awake and alert in our prayers. It's easy uh, to be ungrateful, to not express our gratitude to how you have met our needs and have uh, kindly worked in our lives. Help us, Lord, uh, to take these two aspects of prayer and allow them to uh, just work in our hearts and that you would uh, use them to encourage us in this discipline, that we might be a praying people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.